There's incredible, awesome opportunities coming from newly empowered, traditionally marginalized populations uh, who are publishing their thoughts and their work. And there's a heck of a lot of innovation and, and inspiration out there. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from the amazing Marshall Kirkpatrick. He was the first writer hired by TechCrunch and helped drive its early growth through the quality of his work, then moved to become co-editor of Read Write Web, then one of the defining publications on the internet economy. He left to found Little Bird, which uses network analysis to discover top influences, experts, and insights. Our Little Bird was acquired in 2016. Marshall continues his work to improve the information ecosystem and develop better information systems. You can find him on the web at marshallk.com and on Twitter at marshallk. In this episode, he shares insights on source selection, connecting ideas, diverse thinking, processing for synthesis, enabling serendipity, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Marshall. I'm sure you'll enjoy his insights. Marshall, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Oh, Ross, thanks so much for having me on the show. What a great opportunity for you and I to meet and to compare notes. I can't wait to listen to all the episodes. Coming soon. So, Marshall, you have always thrived on information. I think you're a journalist at one point, a tech journalist, so you got to keep on top of stuff there, and you've built a very interesting startup and I think in lots of other guises you've been across all sorts of change so what's the essence of how you do that oh the essence of it I believe is that I focus on a few fundamental steps the the first is source selection so I am careful and deliberate about building out a library of sources on a topic that I want to follow. Then I set up an interface for myself that makes it easy for me to capture both the, uh, the most important pieces of information coming from those sources and uh, a serendipitous mix of, of other information coming from those sources. And then finally, I try to process the information that I get through tools like uh, space repetition flashcards and uh, and linked note uh, taking in a database and paper and pen, uh, symphonic thinking and drawing of connections between various things that I've read uh, over the over the years. 
And that that combination of source selection, interface creation, and post-processing for synthesis has been my the the fundamental story of how I have have worked with information over the years. Yeah, so uh, a lot more people should learn to do it like you, I'd say. <laughs> well, thanks. I and I would I hope that this show can help. I mean, I want to I want to share some of the practices that I have developed, you know, through trial and error over the years. And uh, I like to tell people about those practices and tools and strategies so that some of them may be useful to some people and or they may just make people feel more free to experiment themselves and uh, and come up with methods that work well for them. Okay, well, let's let's dig into it. So source selection. Uh, so one, well, one, one question is, do you have, um, is this explicit? Do you have a certain number of sources? Is there, you know, around how many sources are there? And how does that evolve? How do you develop that list and evolve it? Yeah, it really depends on the topic. I'd say that the the most important step for me in source selection was just deciding to focus on that. And I was inspired in large part by something that Doc Searles said almost 20 years ago when talking about using a, an RSS reader. And I believe uh, Doc Searles and Steve Gilmore were discussing uh, keyword search versus source subscription. And Doc said, if I listen to everything that was published that contained certain keywords that were of interest to me, uh, it would just be really noisy of a very mixed quality. And uh, he said, I find it to be much more useful to pick a certain collection of trusted sources that have a demonstrated history of adding value around a given topic and subscribing to those. Now, Steve took a, a different perspective. Steve Gilmore, uh, back in the day, was so set on serendipity that he refused to even share links to things with people. He'd say, go Google for it. Uh, go find it yourself. And uh, as you, because he knew that as you searched around for something, you were liable to come across all kinds of other magical you know, unforeseen insights as you finally made your way to your destination. And I do think that that combination is uh, is really delightful. But I, I think that the the source selection reminds me of something that uh, that I read Walt Whitman once said about writing poetry in iambic pentameter. He said, there is a special beauty to creating art within constraints. And so having a, a, a finite set of sources I monitor, it might be uh, 10 people. So I, if I'm building a custom search engine, for example, to search in the archival content of, uh, of an organization, these days I, I limit that to 10 sources, largely because Google custom search now limits uh, to only 10 sources that they'll uh, it'll index, but that's fine. There's ways to work around that, and I usually don't bother because 10 uh, canonical sources in a topic are, are great. Uh, but when I was covering various industries as a journalist or various sectors of the industry, I would go out and build a collection of 300 sources on, say, big data or geolocation or mobile or whatever the trend was, uh, and when I am watching climate change, for example, I've got a collection of a thousand uh, 
people and organizations who are specialists in climate that I'd monitor. And different topics and different circumstances warrant different sizes of, of source list. So your sources, individuals more than um, media entities? Not necessarily, no. I really like a mix of both. I, I'd say that um, there is, there's a different flavor to the sources that you get, say, in a, a Twitter list. You'll get a good mix, but, but perhaps a, a preponderance of individuals. And there's a certain tone to the conversation. There's lots of replies. Uh, it's easy to sort tweets by engagement. So I can say, for example, search inside this Twitter list of 1,000 climate experts, uh, individuals and organizations, but largely individuals, for anything containing the, the words um, indigenous land rights uh, that has more than 20 favorites and sort by recency. And I can find that content then, uh, click and open those tweets and see the dialogue that has occurred around them in, in replies. And that is, uh, is one flavor of research. But if I am using uh, an RSS folder, uh, you know, in an OPML file, a collection of RSS feeds, uh, then perhaps I'm monitoring uh, climate or other organizations, maybe innovation organizations or management consulting organizations, and reading just the official posts that have come out of that organization's uh, feed reader. Not not many individuals these days are able to blog as consistently as you are, Ross. Uh, you're, the fact that your RSS feed just keeps on bringing the hits is uh, is amazing. Uh, but RSS is largely dominated by organizations these days, and not all the content that gets published over an RSS feed gets tweeted about. And so there's a, a different tone and a different type of update that can be found in those sorts of sources. So how do you search within uh, in the way you were describing uh, a moment ago? What tool do you use for that? Well, Twitter, you know, I, I just use a, a little known, but uh, freely available advanced search protocol in the Twitter interface. Uh, some of your your listeners may or may not be familiar with the uh, the standard search engine protocol of site colon domain space keyword to search not the web at large. You know, so you go into Google and say, uh, I uh, well, just for example, while I was on a run here before this podcast, I uh, I've searched uh, site colon Ross Dawson.com space post-capitalism because I had seen you had used that phrase and I wanted to see what uh, you had written. Uh, And I was was about three kilometers into my jog and so I had to do it with my thumb on my phone and and my phone was shaking all around, but it worked out well enough that I was able to pull up your article about uh, capital market efficiency and post-finance reporting. And, uh, and it was really, really intriguing. Uh, but so similarly, you can use that same search protocol or, or protocol like it uh, on Twitter to search just inside of a, a specific uh, Twitter list. So uh, a Twitter list is a feature that makes it easy for people to collect 
you know, uh, a bounded set of topical sources, uh, and that uh, set can be queried uh, just like a single website can be queried uh, or a group of websites can be queried using Google Custom Search or another custom search engine. Uh, when searching Twitter, the protocol is list, uh, colon, uh, then there's a number in the list URL. Um, this changed uh, about a year ago, but these days uh, you want to go, you view the list, uh, look up at the the number uh, in the URL of the list, search inside of that. So list colon uh, number space keyword, and then it will bring you back uh, all of the tweets just inside of that specific list of people. So you can say, Show me what the top climate people, what my collection of climate people have said about a given topic. Now show me what my favorite futurists have said about a given topic. Show me what management consulting people, you know, or whoever that, you know, my favorite people, if you've got a Twitter list, my favorite people, search inside of those uh, people's tweets alone. And uh, and that that kind of, of uh, closely constrained context puts anything that you it really changes the search experience. Yeah, no, I think that's really powerful, this idea of search within, as in don't search the universe, but choose your own, you know, I suppose, filled, uh, curated sources and then search within that. And it, it's so funny. It's a simple thing, but I think there's there's something counterintuitive or, or unfamiliar uh, with the idea. It's not terribly complicated, but it's, but it's not widely done, and it, it take, it's even a little bit challenging to to explain sometimes. But I know, um, yeah. There, so back when I worked as a journalist, I, I kind of put all of these things together, for example, and uh, and a little bit more. And and the the uh, the hub, the central hub of our research at uh, at Rewrite Web when I was the editor there, or co-editor rather, with founder Richard McManus. Uh, was uh, we had a dashboard where we took the 300 top sources in uh, big data, the 300 top sources in you know uh, geolocation. What I, we had 12 different topics we were monitoring, and uh, we went out and through you know link analysis and using free off-the-shelf tools built these collections of 300, and then we ran those 300 um, each of their RSS feeds. We ran through a startup called PostRank. Uh, that would score each item in the feed on a scale of one to 10 uh, by the relative number vis-a-vis uh, -vis relative to other items in the same feed, uh, it would score them by the number of comments, uh, shares on social, bookmarks and delicious and what have you. So then you could say, give me an RSS feed of just the 9.0s and above from Ross's blog, for example. And then I might take, uh, and you know, 300 other uh, futurists and say, give me the 9.0s, uh, the relative breakout hits from all of those sources. And I take all of those RSS feeds, we splice them together in Yahoo pipes to make one uh, RSS feed of the big breakout hits of a given sector. Then we ran them through an open source uh, tool called Magpie RSS that was real simple, just PHP uh, display of our items in an RSS feed. So we could have the top 10, the 10 most recent breakout hits in a given sector, open up the dashboard, view all those. And whenever we saw something that in a among deep subject matter experts had spiked in their audience, we'd say, hmm, would that be of interest to a general purpose audience? If so, let's uh, grab it and consider writing about it. So when we would, when we'd see that, then we'd go into 
I hope you don't mind if I if I tell you the parts two and three of the process. Yeah. Well, actually, I was just going to get to one. One question was, I suppose, uh, dumb aggregators, as in just things which pull RSS feeds, but also algorithmic uh, aggregators. And just wondering if you use any of the algorithmic a- aggregators. You know, these days, the closest I do for that. Well, let, I, I do use Feedly's Today tab, uh, where they uh, will surface the most most read content uh, in a, a given folder in your uh, in your collection. So, if you, I've got a, an art uh, folder, for example, in my Feedly account, and when I go and I click that, it'll show me the the uh, the presumably the URLs that not everyone has the same art collection uh, or art feed collection <laughs> uh, as uh, as I do, uh, but the URLs have been clicked through uh, in other people's subscription lists, and so those URLs that have been clicked through the most appear up at the top, and then down below that are the you know the all just a raw river of news in reverse chronological order, and uh, and I have. Uh, built and used wherever possible that kind of of kind of two sides of the coin where I say I want the top news from these sources and I want the latest news from these sources and I'm going to try to scan as much as I can of the top and I'm just going to dip my head into the latest because it's much more high volume and we'll see what what comes of it. Great. Yeah. What about you? Do you do, can you recommend a, an algorithmic? Uh, well, I mean, a tech, tech meme and uh, meme random are part of my daily. Me too. Daily use. Yeah. I mean, are we counting those? Um, yeah, for goodness sakes. <laughs> yeah, I, back when I was right when I was working as a tech journalist, I would check tech meme ten times a day. It's probably down to two or three times uh, these days. Uh, but and meme random, yeah, I, I'll, I'll check a good five to ten times a day. Yeah, uh, but whereas your Google News or Apple News is so on far less uh, interesting. Anyway, so back to back to the process. So, all right, okay. you've got your got your feeds. So we find so something has broken out uh, among subject matter experts. Uh, it's got a relatively high engagement uh, among their audiences, and uh, and we take a look at it and we say, oh, we want to write about that. So then, step two is that we built a, a system where we scraped the uh, Twitter bios of everyone who followed anyone on our staff. Um, and we made a simple little search engine where uh, you could search for keywords in people's bios uh, and uh, who were following anyone on staff. So, for example, we had a semantic web widget in our dashboard because that was just the rage, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And uh, we saw that Google acquired this company called MetaWeb. And uh, and we said, oh, that lo- that's a general interest story right there. Uh, so we went and we searched inside of our Twitter follower network for the word semantic web, and we uh, had them ranked by number of followers, and we saw who on staff they were following. So I was able to jump into our you know, Slack predecessor into a Skype chat room and say, hey, Sarah, would you DM this lady? Uh, she follows you and tell her we need urgent expert comment uh, on this news. And we'd fire off three, four, five of those requests and people would say, oh my goodness, you thought of me to ask for uh, input on this? I followed you two years ago or three years ago. And of all the people you thought of me, and we'd, sometimes we'd tell them that we had a system, but most of the time we'd say, yep, we thought of you. We thought you'd be the perfect person to ask for comment. <laughs> and so then uh, as we waited for those uh, comments to come back, 
Um, then uh, we would also go over to our custom search engine uh, where we had indexed the archives of all of those top 300 blogs uh, that we were monitoring for breakout hits. And so we could search for, you know, what do what have semantic web experts said about MetaWeb in the past? And, uh, and so then we were able to say, well, you know, in the industry, MetaWeb has a reputation for this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, and people would say, you just happened to have read that blog post 18 months ago and have recall of it now to be able to link to it in, in your new coverage. And, uh, and so before you know it, within usually our goal was to be within, in less than 30 minutes, we get uh, a blog post up that covered the news before our competitors that had multiple real-time expert uh, feedback uh, in it and uh, cited multiple archival pieces of research from subject matter experts. And, uh, and that was how we, we competed uh, with other tech publications. And it was, uh, it was awesome. It was really fun. Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, that creates value obviously for the people reading the articles, but I mean, in a way it's also whether or not you're sharing that, the, you know, this is a process to be able to really get to get some, some real insight. So, so then you've, I suppose the next phase is the, you know, the pulling and I suppose storing or cataloging or linking or so how, what's that? What's the next fit? Yeah. So these days uh, I, I consume this content, and process it through uh, a couple of different methods. Uh, I have, uh, I, I take in a lot of content through my ears. Uh, I really love um, Pocket on, uh, on my iPhone uh, and their text-to-speech capabilities. So I've got an if this, then that, uh, you know, applet set up to say anytime I like a, like a tweet that has a link in it, send that link to pocket and then I can go for a jog or do my dishes or clean my bathroom or do whatever, you know, mundane activities uh, and listen, not that jogging is mundane. It's beautiful. Uh, but having uh, just all of the articles that I've bookmarked read as a playlist uh, uh, also got a good uh, PDF uh, text to speech app uh, that, you know, that works Works fairly well. Uh, I think there's lots of them out there, uh, but so I'll I'll go and I'll do that, and then I'll either stop or after I finish uh, running. Um, oh, and then I also have the other uh, if this and that. Uh, there's a few select sources that uh, where I take the whole RSS feed uh, and just pipe it straight into Pocket. Um, so there's like a there's a short number of people whose content is just so remarkable that. Uh, like uh, lately, uh, Bruce McTagg, who uh, calls himself a gentleman thief of business ideas, uh, writes these long, really thought-provoking uh, blog posts. And every one of them goes straight into my phone and then straight into my ears and straight into my brain. Uh, and so then I'll stop and I'll take note of things that caught my interest and I'll uh, put them into... Uh, I For more than a year now, I've been using Rome Research. And I like that pretty well. Uh, and I, I do all my note taking in Rome, but uh, note, but reading notes in particular, I tag as reading, and then once every one to four weeks, depending on and when I'm able to make the time on the weekend, I'll go in, I'll load up all of the things that I've tagged reading, many of which are from paper books, but some of which are from digital as well, you know, and listening, uh, and I will put them into Anki. Uh, 
spaced repetition mobile flashcard app. Uh, and so then each morning I, I'll spend between five and 15 minutes uh, reviewing flashcards, uh, the things that I have read. And, uh, and then they'll come back up, you know, uh, when I'm working with someone, I'll say, ah, oh, you know, this reminds me of, and I'll either have it, you know, recall, or I'll just remember that it's there. And then I'll go search in, in Rome, uh, or in Anki to be able to pull up an original quote, uh, to cite. So you just said for the flashcards, you pulling, you're accepting a phrase or a quote or a, yeah. or a fact. Yep. Whatever I want to try to remember. So let's see. Uh, okay, so if I open up my Anki flashcard app right now, for example, I, I read, uh, quote, most products are exceptional only. And now I have to identify what's on the flip side of that flashcard. And on the other side, uh, what it's going to say is most products are exceptional only uh, when seen within their very best frame of reference, said April Dunford in her book, Obviously Awesome. So let's see if I got it right. Flip it over. When we understand them within their best frame of reference, April Dunford. I got it. So now I'm going to hit the uh, green button and it says, this is a new one to you. So we're going to show it to you again in 10 minutes. Uh, but if you've got it wrong, we would have shown it to you later in one minute. And, uh, and so that's good. And then, you know, then I get another one that says Tom Cheese, right? From Book of the Future once said, curation is my shorthand term for... Oh, do I know Tom? Now, this one, it's been a while since I've reviewed it, but I believe it's uh, uh, curation of information and selection uh, of which pieces of information are are most. No, curation is the I I'll be damned. I don't remember exactly, exactly. Plus, I'm doing this, you know, with you. Uh, oh, oh, Tom T's right said. Curation is my shorthand term for the dual skills of discovery and qualification. Discovery and qualification. So, I don't know, that was a hard one. I didn't really get it. So, I'm going to self-report, you know, and now it's going to be, it's going to show me that one a little bit earlier. So, those are the kinds of things that I might. So, the so the idea is that you know, these are things which you use in conversation or that are just feeding your... I suppose, views or ideas? I, a lot of them, yeah. I mean, some of them say things like, if you do X, uh, dot, 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 and the flip side says, you know, something, your life will fall apart. Uh, and I'll uh, that's right, I don't want to do that again. You know, so there's certainly some, like, life lessons learned uh, as well as things I've read. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So in terms of getting connections, I mean, have you found Rome research is useful for drawing together connections between ideas, or is that something you use other tools for or other frames of mind? Rome is pretty good. Uh, it's uh, I, I don't use it as thoroughly as some people do for that. Um, I do. I have a, a random uh, plug in there that I really like that each at the top of each day's notes uh, will will randomly print three uh, of my previous notes tagged either reading best practices or lessons learned. 
Um, and so often you know, I connect those. Uh, but I'll tell you, probably my favorite method for for connections is something I came up with myself. It's a, a method that I call triangle thinking. And, uh, and the way that I do it is uh, I make a list of three different things and they can be related or unrelated uh, or random, but they're usually things that I'm working on or thinking about what have you. Uh, inspired by uh, Dan Pink's book, uh, A Whole New Mind, where he says, you know, if, you're, if your work is in, you know, uh, what do they call it, routine cognitive labor, you're in trouble because computers are going to eat your lunch. Uh, but uh, there are non-routine cognitive and emotional, social labor and what have you that are especially human. That's, you know, where where uh, the future lies in terms of the future work. What have you. And he says, and in particular, uh, what he calls symphonic thinking or the ability to draw connections between seemingly disconnected uh, ideas or entities is a, a key skill for the future, he says. So when I read that, I thought, all right, I'm going to take three things. I'm going to put them on a piece of paper and I'm going to draw, uh, I'm going to draw connections uh, and I'm going to ask, okay, I'm going to label them A, B, and C. And I'm going to ask, uh, standing from the vantage point of A, what would A have to offer B? And then I'd flip it around and say, now, if I was looking from the vantage point of B, what would B offer A? And then B to C and C to A. And so I'd, I'd write out uh, six unidirectional connecting thoughts between things. And without fail, at least one and usually two or three of them, I'll look at afterwards and say, now that is a keeper. That's a good one right there. I hadn't thought of that and I'd like it. I'm going to use it. And sometimes I'll bring in a wild card uh, as well and uh, and add that on and say, now, what does that thought mean for climate change? Or what does that thought mean for innovation or or uh, or what have you? But that kind of, of idea generation practice has uh, is something that I I uh, I try to do almost every day. That's fantastic. Have you written about this? I have not. No, my buddy Bill Johnston uh, has been trying to has been telling me I should for a while. And you should. Be, I'll allow my voice to that. Oh, thanks. Awesome. That's a great one. I really, I really think that's really, really insightful. Yeah. So any, anything else? So that I love that. I love that. Some, I actually haven't read uh, Whole New Mind. So uh, so synthesis. I think you know is is the foundation of just the way I think about the world. So I love that frame. Symphonic. Uh, Symphonic thinking. I think uh, other people uh, refer to to similar things. I think when they uh, with the phrase associative creativity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think of that's uh, just a layer below. So part of the association is one thing. The synthesis is is the overarching thing when you're bringing it all together. And so associative is one. You know, you're making some associations. Sure. And that's that's the foundation for creativity and innovation, but the the symphony or the the synthesis is bringing that all together into a whole, and so that that's a, that's a higher order frame. Yeah, I like that a lot. I also uh, I really like uh, so it's coming up. On, it's going to be my my forty uh, fifth birthday tomorrow, and I think happy birthday. Yeah, thanks, thanks. I'm celebrating all month long. Uh, I uh, I can't remember what birthday it was a while ago, but a few years ago, I bought myself a copy of uh, Mortimer Adler's book uh, called How to Read a Book, and really like the way that he talks about you know you take something you're reading and you ask a few there's a few basic questions uh, that are good to ask about it like what 
what is it saying? What are it, what's its argument? Uh, do you believe that argument? Do you think that it's credible? Uh, what are the constituent parts uh, inside of the thing? How are they woven together? And uh, if I when I take the time to be mindful about that and deliberate about thinking about it, that can that can also be super super helpful. But there's so many different possibilities. I I feel like uh, yeah, there I, I feel like there are are uh, are opportunities to to find new ways to relate to synthesis. I feel like we're just starting to scratch the surface of it. Uh, you know, one of the other things, a couple of new things that I've started doing recently are um, using uh, uh, AI, uh, specifically uh, a GPT-3 uh, based startup called HyperWrite uh, to finish sentences and paragraphs uh, based on a piece of information uh, or to, to help direct where I should go and search. So I'll start typing a, a couple of sentences and then say go, and it will use you know OpenAI's corpus of the internet uh, to come up with next logical sentences uh, based on things that I have no domain knowledge of, uh, but that will then help direct where I should go and look and what, what, uh, what terms I should search for and uh, what some arguments might be, you know, to consider that I, I really enjoy. That's uh, that's uh, that's interesting. Very interesting. So you're also a student, well, not more than a student practitioner of uh, futures thinking and foresight and love to hear about how those have informed how you, you know, look for, find and make sense of and make value from information. Well, that too, I feel like I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of, I, I, I realized a few weeks, months ago, that I have this big collection of custom search engines. Uh, for example, I've got you know the the ten best sources on artificial intelligence, the ten best sources on climate change, ten best uh, sources on indigenous matters, uh, all on my homepage on marshallk.com. So I made them publicly available to anyone else, and I go back to that myself. It's my little mini library of dynamic reference books where I'll pick up. You know, it's essentially like the encyclopedia of of uh english language chinese news coverage in my in that custom search engine and i realized a few weeks ago that i had never created a, a steep or, or pestle or or have you know collection of custom searches so now i have gone through and said all right you know so just just to define those for the listeners yeah so so uh those are are a common foresight model that says when we look at a thing and anticipate its prospective futures Let's look at it from a number of different vantage points in terms of of how social change uh, might uh, impact or be impacted by this thing, uh, technological change, uh, economic, environmental, and political, uh, and then sometimes people include legal or or other ways of uh, of doing things. So I will. So I just built for myself a, a collection of. Uh, of custom search engines on each of those different facets of a steep analysis. So when I'm doing research on like say, Oh, travel and hospitality. Uh, I, I did some research on the other day. I went and, and searched for some relevant keywords inside of the archives uh, and look with a, a, a focus on recent, but not exclusively at all uh, articles from the top, uh, 10 websites covering, you know, culture and anthropology. Uh, and then I search for uh, travel and hospitality in the top 10 technology 
websites, everything from TechCrunch uh, to MIT, uh, you know, Technology Review. Uh, and we, there's just, there's so much content being published every day that it really, all, you know, all we can take is just a little tiny, uh, a t- little tiny spoon to, to pull up a, a spoonful from the, the giant cauldron of soup that's out there. Uh, but, you know, a, a precisely shaped and considered spoon can perhaps, you know, can, can come up with some real, some real gold, some real, real nuggets. So that's one way is uh, through custom search engines focused on steep in particular. Uh, I also like, so uh, PwC did a steep analysis on the future of the insurance industry 10 years ago. Uh, my favorite steep analysis I've ever seen uh, because they, you know, they did probably a Delphi model uh, where they went out and, and uh, interviewed a whole bunch of subject matter experts uh, about a series of questions, then uh, obfuscated their identities and, and language use, uh, and then reshared what with everyone what their peers had said in response to uh, the question and said, so what do you think about this? Uh, and did, you know, three rounds of, uh, of obfuscated but expert-driven uh, discussions about various topics uh, that they then use to populate a, a steep model on uh, what the insurance industry might look like in uh, 2020. This is they did it in 2010, uh, but they did it not just in in one column of social, technological, environmental, economic, and political, uh, but they did it uh, as a, a continuum where they said if things trend conservative. Here's what it, if they trend very conservative. Here's what it'll look like in terms of social, it, moderately conservative. You know, just straight up no change. Moderately progressive, uh, very progressive. And so uh, it was just a really rich map of of perspective futures. And I, I have uh, done a lightweight reproduction of of, uh, of some of that uh, in some analysis that I've done recently. Fantastic, but I. And then I love in-casting. Uh, simplest thing, you know, that uh, Wendy Schultz calls the little black dress of, of foresight. A uh, real simple tool where you say you take a perspective future scenario and, uh, and you ask yourself, if the world ends up looking like this, uh, what does... Uh, you know, what's a big win that hits the front page of the, this thing called a newspaper that we used to have? Uh, uh, answer that question. Then what's newly prohibited uh, or, or illegal um, and a, a, you know, a, a, a negative consequence of that future scenario? And then finally, how do you get to work each day in that world? Uh, what is just the practical uh, utility you know, around this matter look like? And so I'll oftentimes go... And I'll, I'll say, okay, I'm going to build a set of uh, domain experts that have an extensive published history on websites or Twitter, and then I will search for keywords to uh, to surface content that they've written related to this topic that I'm researching, and then I'll categorize some of the things that I've found into those different, you know, into that model, and say, oh, this one looks like that could inform a, you know, a big win. Uh, oh, that sounds like a kind of problem that would be help me illustrate, you know, a newly prohibited uh, activity or, uh, or how I would get to work each day. And so I combine uh, that kind of information gathering with foresight models in, in that way. So just to, to round out, is there anything else other than what we've talked about you think would uh, 
be a particularly valuable insight or perspective or practice that uh, you have? You know, I I think that that one of the often missing elements um, to to these kinds of analyses, and one that I strive to add more and more uh, to in my work, uh, is is a matter of source selection, uh, but but in in particular with political power uh, in mind. So you know, John Hegel talks about how how uh, the value creation is increasingly occurring on the margins of of power inside of an organization uh, where frontline workers are solving real-time novel problems uh, and and the insights generated from that work uh, is is really one of the best sources of, of new value and so listening to and empowering those people on the on the margins of, of power are, is essential or uh, Damon Santola uh, says that uh, that innovation occurs, uh, in a in a sort of a Goldilocks zone best, uh, where you are not so close to the center of power that uh, that you'll be crushed by the immune system of the uh, of the uh, the network. Uh, but uh, so you want to be out closer to the margins, but not so far uh, outside the margins where you don't have uh, of access to flow of resources. Uh, and uh, for the ability for your innovative ideas to get traction, and and of course, you know, every organization is just a fractal uh, of the the universe in general. And so, when I uh, do this kind of analysis, I increasingly try to um, look for people who uh, are on the margins of traditional political power in a wildly unjust world. Uh, so, I'll search. Uh, for you know, search inside of the tweets of of uh, women futurists or uh, women in tech, uh, or I've got a uh, uh, you know uh, black Twitter uh, people of color uh, influencers on Twitter and search uh, for what or uh, indigenous organizations custom search engine and uh, and so I don't want to just search inside of management consulting firms. I mean I, they produce incredible stuff. The content that McKinsey and Gartner and Deloitte and Forrester and Accenture publish uh, is just amazing. Uh, but uh, I also want to make sure. Uh, you know, I don't want to live in a world that is entirely defined by those kinds of organizations. Uh, and so there are ways to to build tools to make sure to look for uh, perspectives uh, from sources uh, outside of the traditional, you know, power structures uh, who have been marginalized and are increasingly, I mean, that power dynamic is changing dramatically these days. Uh, and if you are not uh, paying attention to learning from uh, and 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 flowing some resources towards uh, people who have been uh, unjustly marginalized and are uh, increasingly empowered, moving towards the center uh, in a in a period of disruption, uh, then you're going to be caught flat-footed and not feel real great about yourself. Uh, there's uh, there's incredible, awesome opportunities uh, coming from. Uh, newly empowered, traditionally marginalized populations uh, who are publishing their thoughts and their work. Uh, and we can stop and listen uh, to those. We can set up tools to listen. And uh, and there's a heck of a lot of, of, uh, of innovation and, and inspiration out there. And uh, and so I would, would encourage folks to do that as well. That's a fantastic point. It's uh, you know, so important for so many reasons. 
and you know if you just look at the 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 middle the core then you're you're missing a lot of what's important and you sometimes just need to take some deliberate frames all right this is what's uh excluded voice practically and ethically yeah i think that it's a it's essential Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and your insight, Marshall. That's been really valuable. Thanks for including me, Ross. I can't wait to listen to the rest of the episodes and uh, and just learn from you uh, in this. What what a wonderful... I really feel like we're in a period of, of such dramatic information overload that dealing with that, uh, both in terms of consumption and publishing effectively and getting a hold of people uh, through you know dignified, diligent, shirt sleeve tugging uh and all of those such a new set of skills and i think it's a it's a service to all of us that you're doing here to uh to interview folks and and uh, and so we can all learn from each other thank you great to talk marshall you too russ thank you for listening to the show if you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review, and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.